So our scripture today is taken from uh, Luke chapter 1, the last uh, section of Luke chapter 1, beginning in uh, verse 57, and then reading through to the end in verse 80. If you're using uh, the Black Bibles, uh, then someone shout out the page number. I'll bet it's 1017. Sound right? All right. So, 1017, if you're using the Black Bibles. I don't know if you've noticed this or you feel this way, but I've just in preaching through the opening chapter of Luke, the first chapter of the gospel according to Luke is very much like the weeks leading up to Christmas, isn't it? I mean, there's only a few mentions of Jesus. It's, it's mostly anticipation and preparation, just like the weeks leading up to Christmas. There's a lot going on in the preparation, but the spectacular event is yet to unfold. There have been angelic announcements and miraculous conceptions and reminders of God's faithfulness and never-ending promises. There have been songs about God's grace and kindness, even to the lowest and the least. And today we finally come to the birth, not of Jesus, but the birth of John. John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer, as he will be known, the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth. This is the last Old Testament prophet. This is the last of the prophets in that, as prophets would point forward to the Messiah, John would be the last one to point forward to the Messiah. After him, the Messiah. This is the only prophet, at least through my studies this week, this is the only prophet about whom prophecies are written. Like, this guy is so important that prophets talk about him. Most prophets point to Jesus. There are prophets, though, that also point to John. Our, our call to worship today in Isaiah 40 is specifically about John, the one who would prepare the way in the desert. Twice in Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, in Malachi 3.1, and the last verses of Malachi. You would expect the last verses of the Old Testament to be pointing very specifically to Jesus, and yet the last verses of the Old Testament point in a roundabout way to Jesus, but point through John to Jesus. John has an angelic announcement of his birth, just like Jesus has. Now, John is not the only person beyond Jesus to have an angelic or at least a, a, a or God announce his birth. We know that Isaac was announced to Abraham and Sarah uh, by God himself. If you remember, uh, and if you don't remember, you'll want to take the, the Judges and Ruth uh, Bible study, but Samson, his birth was announced by an angel who came to Samson's mother and father. Now, in those two cases, Abraham and Sarah and Samson's parents, uh, they at least had the privilege of naming their own children. Uh, but here, in John's case, the angel announces before John is even conceived that God has already chosen a name for him, John or Johann. 
which means Yahweh is gracious or graced by Yahweh, graced by the Lord. And we'll see in this passage today how that causes no small consternation among the neighbors when they find out this boy's name. Last week, we focused on the Magnificat, or Mary's song of praise and thanksgiving to God for His, for his grace and mercy and deliverance for herself. Today, Zechariah gets the music bug, and he blesses God for His, for his promise-keeping faithfulness. This is another of the songs of uh, the season. Again, another song that they give by Latin title, Benedictus, or Blessing. And you'll see why, because he, he opens with the idea of God's blessing. So let's stand for the reading of God's Word about both the birth of John and the song of Zechariah. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the, to, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. The grass withers, the flowers fade, and yet the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. 
So while there are many ways we could break this passage down, uh, the outline before you really isn't so much an application-oriented outline as much as it's a, let's look at some of the people in this passage or some of the persons uh, looking at uh, the neighbors first and their responses, looking at Elizabeth and Zechariah, and then looking at God himself in this passage. So first we look at the neighbors, and uh, they start out pretty well, don't they? We're told in verse 58 that they heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to Elizabeth, and they rejoiced with her, which is appropriate. Uh, God had uh, delivered Zechariah and Elizabeth from their barrenness. Uh, They were an older couple. Uh, They were beyond the years of having children, and yet God miraculously uh, gave to them a son. And the neighbors rightly rejoice. They rejoice with her because the Lord had shown great mercy to her. Now, this is just a a freebie for just chapter 1 here. Uh, The Lord is mentioned in chapter 1 17 times just in this one chapter. Uh, And it's while the chapter is written, while all of the New Testament is written for us in Greek, I can't help but feel as though uh, Luke is setting up or at least uh, speaking of the Lord in the Old Testament, old in the covenantal fashion of Yahweh. As he speaks of Yahweh, the Lord had shown mercy to her. In fact, it, he says specifically, the Lord had shown great mercy to her. Again, in Greek, but reflecting his understanding of the hesed, the great mercy, the tender mercy, the loving kindness, the, the covenantal faithfulness of God. The Lord had been covenantally faithful to his promises and to Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now, interestingly, four of the times that Lord is mentioned, it's referring to Jesus. So Luke does not make any qualms about telling you that Jesus is God. And so that's important as people say, well, the, the, you know, the Gospels, the, you know, no one ever really claimed he was God till, till Paul started writing. But that's just, that's just not true. Uh, Luke says at least four times before Jesus is even born that he is the Most High. He is God himself. Now, if only they had remained in that rejoicing mood. The eighth day comes along. Uh, it's the day that uh, boys would be circumcised in Israel. Uh, it's also uh, traditionally the day that they would be named. It was sort of their naming day. Uh, when they would go to get circumcised, then they would also be named. And so you can see the picture. It's another celebration. Folks are gathering. It's a great time to get together. And, uh, and people want to, you know, they're getting ready. They're anticipating what this young man is going to be named. You know, uh, they just assume it's going to be, it's going to be Zechariah Jr., little Zach, ZJ, Zachy. And, and, you know, and eventually Elizabeth says no. And they're like, okay, yeah, Zachy, that's a little lowbrow. And she's like, no, no. I mean, that's not his name. No, he shall be called John. And now the crowd is confused and a little, a little miffed, a little judgmental. John? There's no John in your family. John, where, where does that even come from, John? How quickly they turn from, from rejoicing 
to judgment. And it's interesting that then they're like, okay, well, that's cute, Elizabeth. And they go, they're like, okay, well, let's talk to Zechariah. And just to show the dullness of the crowd, Luke says, so they went and made signs to Zechariah. You know, because he can't talk. I imagine they screamed also, you know, because they seem like that kind of people. Zechariah, what name do you want your baby boy to have? And he's like, I can hear you. (laughs) I can't talk. But he grabs his well-worn tablet. And he's like, he writes simply, his name is John. And two things happen. Well, that's the second thing. Sorry, I got ahead of myself. So two things. He writes the name on the tablet, and his mouth is open, his tongue is loosed, and he is finally, after over nine months of silence, able to talk. And the first thing out of his mouth is blessing and praise and thanksgiving to God. And finally, the crowds have a final reaction. They are full of fear. They're like, what does this mean? You know, news spreads all through the hill country of Judea about this, and everyone is wondering, what, what is this child going to be? Rejoicing and fear. Like These aren't things that we normally think go together. We think, all right, you're going to rejoice, and then you might be afraid, but then you'll rejoice again. But, you know, Christmas is intentionally a time of rejoicing and fear. Like, it's a time that, like, how many times throughout all of the different Christmas accounts, whether it's in Matthew or in Luke, someone is told, don't be afraid. Because the coming of God ought to elicit from us fear. Now, it is mercy for God to say to us, don't be afraid. But the right response to God's presence is fear. Rejoicing and fear, a reverence, a a humble, a humility, an awe. What does this mean? We have songs that, that celebrate this. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. This brings us to, to Zechariah and Elizabeth. In brief, when we look at Zechariah and Elizabeth, what we see in Elizabeth, we see faith expressed in obedience. And in Zechariah, we see faith expressed in praise. You know, I love how Elizabeth is undaunted by the crowd's expectations or the crowd's opinion. She speaks boldly and clearly, he shall be called John. She has, she has believed ever since, it seems, Zechariah communicated to her what the angel had told him. She has believed, she has rejoiced, she has faith, and it, 
It produces in her just a simple obedience. The angel said his name was John. His name is John. Obedience, even when it seems foolish or when it goes against the crowd or goes against your friends or your neighbors or culture's expectations. Obedience is, it is a reflection. It is a picture of belief. You know, putting it negatively, a lack of obedience, an unwillingness to obey God is a sign of unbelief. Disobedience to God and to God's word, to God's calling, to God's commands is a sign of unbelief. I don't mean it's a sign of uh, salvific, like you're not a believer, but when we don't obey God, it's because we don't believe him. When I don't obey God, I either don't believe he's wise enough to get me through this without my disobeying or without my taking matters into my own hands, or I don't believe that he's good enough to, to know better or that he's wise enough to know what I need or that he's kind enough to provide without me getting involved. My actions of disobedience are always a sign of disbelief. I don't believe that God is good. I don't believe that God is able. I don't believe that God cares. Something in that Elizabeth, her obedience is a sign of belief. She trusts God and it shows in her obedience. This isn't to say that obedience and praise are some separate thing. Sometimes your faith shows up in obedience. Sometimes your faith shows up in praise. We've already seen in Elizabeth how her belief, her faith shows up in praise. She has praised God already. She rejoiced at the presence of her Lord even uh, in utero. She praised God and praised God for his bringing salvation. Zechariah has been, though, conspicuously silent up until this point. And so it's only now that we can read about what his faith looks like, what it sounds like. And especially because the last thing we heard out of Zechariah's mouth was unbelief. The last words he he spoke were spoken in unbelief. And so now the very next words are words that have come through after ten months, nine months of contemplation, of consideration, of repentance. And the first words that come out are words of faith, words of praise and thanksgiving, blessing God. This song in Greek, it's all one sentence. Even in your English Bibles, it's two sentences. And I love that it starts with Jesus. Even if he's unnamed, we know who he is praising God for. He knows that he is praising God first for the Messiah and second for what his son will be. But his first praise is entirely focused on God and the Messiah. The first thing you notice in this psalm at the beginning is that Zechariah seems... He he sees God's promises as so sure that he speaks of them in past tense as though they've already been accomplished. Things that 
are a few months and even 30 years away, he praises God for having accomplished them already. God has visited and redeemed his people in verse 68. God has raised up a horn of salvation in verse 69. So great is Zechariah's trust in God that he speaks of his promises as having already been accomplished. When God promises something, you can speak of that promise in past tense. It's like in Romans 8 when, when Paul is giving that encouragement that, you know, listen, like, I know you're suffering, I know you're going through things, but, but God causes everything to work for the good of those that he is called. Because those he's called, he's predestined. Those he's predestined, he's, he's justified. Those he's justified, he's sanctified. Those he's sanctified, he's glorified. So sure is your salvation that Paul talks about your glorification in the past tense. You are glorified. That's how sure you can be that God is with you, that God is for you. You are now glorified. Zechariah praises God in the past tense for promises that still he waits for deliverance on. Second, Zechariah praises God for his covenantal promises. Again, notice how Zechariah, like Mary, they knew God's word. They knew the promises of God. And in verses 69 and 70, the horn of David, as he spoke by the mouth of his prophets. And in verses 72 to 73, the mercy promised to our fathers. He remembers his holy covenant as he swore to Abraham. His, his praise of God is covenantal. He sees God as a covenantal good God that he has, he has hesed for his people. He has covenantal love for his people. And it causes Zechariah to praise him. Third, Zechariah recognizes the need for repentance and forgiveness, not just for those dirty people out there, but for those who would count themselves as God's people. You notice in, in verses 76 to 79 that the purpose of John is to give knowledge of salvation to God's people in the forgiveness of their sins. That light will shine on those who sit in darkness, that he will guide our feet in the path of peace. Zechariah recognizes that this repentance for sins, forgiveness for sins, isn't just for some people out there on the outside, but it's needed for us, even as God's people, that John would come with to preaching the forgiveness of sins for God's people. And finally, Zechariah recognizes that that forgiveness of sins doesn't leave us unaffected. Like in his song of praise, uh, forgiveness uh, and restored relationship with God, Zechariah recognizes it changes us. It changes you. When you are forgiven, when you are restored to God, it changes you. In verse 74, 
so that we can serve Him without fear. In verse 75, in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. In verse 79, guiding our feet in the way of peace. These things are are changes in God's people. I now serve God. Yes, it's right to come with fear, but now that I'm saved, now that I'm forgiven, I can serve God without fear. I can serve God in holiness and righteousness. Not perfect holiness, not perfect righteousness, but there is a change in me. I desire what God desires now. Because I live at peace with God, I seek peace with my neighbor. And again, all of this because of the, the child who will be born, not, not the child who has been born, but the child who will be born. Because he says, you, child, will be the prophet of the Most High. So Zechariah, Luke, recognize this second child being born is the Most High Himself. You will prepare the way for who? For the Lord. The Lord is coming to deliver His people. Which finally brings us to uh, looking at this passage and seeing God throughout it. You know, at least uh, four things. And this we've seen throughout chapter 1, God, God is faithful to the insignificant, isn't he? An old man and woman from the hills of Judea, and God is kind to them. A young virgin from an insignificant village, and God is kind to her. an oppressed people group. And God remembers His covenant with them. Not because they are so active in waiting on God, although there are some, like Zechariah and Elizabeth, like Mary and Joseph and others, who were longing, waiting for the coming Messiah. Like you and me. God is faithful to the insignificant. That is important for you and me to get our heads and our hearts around. Second, God, God does things different than you, you and I would. Like, you know, give us a thousand opportunities to come up with a salvation plan, and we probably don't use a teenage virgin. God does things differently. You know, silencing a priest while a teenage girl sings his praises. We saw it already, and it, it plays itself out finally in Zechariah. But, you know, the expected order of sort of understanding, especially in a priest's home, you expect the order to go, dad gets it, mom gets it, kid gets it. But in this, we see the exact opposite. The angel says to, mom, to dad, 
the child will be filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. Child gets it. Elizabeth rejoices at the presence of Mary and her unborn Savior. And we're told Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Mom gets it. And then finally, after 10 months of silence, we're told Zechariah, filled with the Holy Spirit, prophesied. Dad gets it. God's ways are not our ways. God loves to do things in the unexpected way and to show that he's still God and he can still deliver and save. Third, God's deliverance, do you notice Zechariah celebrates a very physical and tangible deliverance? In verse 71, we will be saved from our enemies, from the hand of those who hate us. Verse 74, delivered from our enemies. You know, a lot of times we read some of these prophecies and, and we take things that are very tangible and actual about real enemy people and we, we try to over-spiritualize it. And we say, well, that's not really what he meant. But that's only, we can only do that in the convenience of really kind of Western Christianity uh, where we are not face-to-face with our enemies daily. Where we don't have to pray daily for deliverance from our enemies because if God doesn't deliver us, we could be killed or imprisoned simply for belonging to Christ. There is a real, tangible deliverance coming. We are going to be delivered from our enemies one day. That's an important, that's an important thing to be encouraged over. I mean, do you think our brothers and sisters in, in North Korea or in Afghanistan, or in any of these regions of the world where where they are constantly under threat of persecution and execution? Do you think spiritualizing the idea that one day we'll be delivered from our enemies is really an encouragement? Or is it an encouragement to know that, no, one day we will be delivered from our enemies? There is tangible, actual deliverance that Christ brings But that's not to overshadow the most important deliverance that God brings. Zechariah celebrates that God's deliverance is from guilt and sin. In verse 77, knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Knowledge of salvation means that I recognize why I need to be saved. What it is that I really need saving from. And that is my sin and my guilt. Verse 78, the tender mercy of our God. Mercy is only for those who need something they don't deserve. Mercy isn't for those who are doing just fine, thank you very much. 
We cry for mercy because we can't fix it. We can't do it. We can't provide for ourselves. We need the mercy of God. Zechariah celebrates the tender mercy of God. Zechariah celebrates the light that is for those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death. I can't help but think of about 2,000 years earlier, another song written by a shepherd king. He says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Zechariah celebrates that even living in the valley of the shadow of death, the Messiah has come, bringing light to those who live in darkness, forgiveness of sins, mercy, all because of his chesed, all because of his great mercy that he has shown to us. The Lord has come. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for this song of celebration and thanksgiving, the song of blessing. God, thank you for the deliverance that you have worked for us in your son, Jesus. A deliverance that was not free to you, but is free to us. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins that we have, that you have delivered us from our guilt, that one day when Christ returns, we will be delivered fully and finally from all of your enemies. God, we praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.